Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tussaud. And I'm Ann Friedman. This week, I want to talk about scams. This idea of FOMO and a feeling like, you know, everybody else is having fun without you or is like participating in some sort of like iconic cultural event or just doing something. And we're both a little confounded by this. Bonjour, I'm Friedman. Hola. <laughs> One day we're going to get it right. <laughs> you know I'm fully trolling you, right? I know, I know, <laughs> but it gets me every time. <laughs> you just want this family to be on the same page linguistically. We have some announcements today. First announcement is do something nice for yourself. <laughs> Second announcement is PSA. help us. Help us. We need... We need your help. We don't ask for help a lot. Actually, we probably do every week, but we need help for real. (laughs) Tell the people what we need help with. We have a listener survey that we would love you to take. It is at callyourgirlfriend.com slash survey. There are some questions about you that are just going to help us get a demographic picture of our audience. And then there are also some questions about what you like about the show or what you want to see more of topics you want us to cover we're starting to really think about all of the cool things we're going to do in 2019 and so a great upside of you taking this survey is not just helping us but getting to have a little bit of say in what you listen to right it'll help us give you a a better show so the audience should do the survey it takes five minutes callyourgirlfriend.com slash survey thanks (laughs) y'all okay what do you really want to talk about this week this week I want to talk about scams. Please elaborate because I don't want to talk about Fire Festival again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. We have both watched both Fire Fest documentaries, the one on Hulu and the one on Netflix. The documentaries themselves were fine. Um, Actually, they weren't fine. They were (laughs) flawed in these like really sad kind of ways. Documentary is my favorite form of content. And when all I see are just like glaring editorial things that make me angry, it makes me sad, especially for zeitgeisty things like this. But the thing is that like, we don't actually care about Firefest. You can read for yourself all the places on the internet, why they're bad or whatever. The scam at the heart of that story is not what we're concerned right, with. Right. Like we don't care about Billy McFarlane because to be clear, I don't think he's a cult leader. I just think he's a white kid who does cocaine and everybody around him is a liar. Also, can I tell you, I keep mess- mixing him up with that... Um, Family Guy guy. Yeah. Whenever I hear his name, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, you went and made a kind of racist cartoon. And now like, (laughs) of course you're in trouble with this. I keep mixing (laughs) them up anyway. And also there's like, they weirdly look a little bit alike. They 100% have the same like scammer white man face. But so anyway, like, you know, the other scam that's going on in the Firefest economy of it all, which is something that we've talked about before on this podcast, this idea of FOMO. And a feeling like, you know, everybody else is having fun without you or is like participating in some sort of like iconic cultural event or just doing something. And we're both a little confounded by this. Yeah. And I would say also that one thing that was excellent about watching two documentaries about the same topic 
um, that were flawed in different ways is that it's a great opportunity for being a critical consumer of like images and narrative, which I think is also related to the idea of FOMO and whether you feel it when you are looking at your own Instagram. And it's more at the forefront in the Hulu documentary, which one of the things that that documentary posits is that this wouldn't have been possible in a kind of pre-Instagram influencer era. Like this whole debacle is born of this era of social media and this particular way people engage with celebrity, which is a thesis that I don't fully agree with. But you know that scene where they have two influencers, I'm air quoting, two influencers who attended Fire Festival and they're interviewing them separately about like essentially their jobs or like their role as influencers. And they ask them both, well, what is your brand? Do you know the scene I'm talking about? I know exactly what scene you're talking about because I had to drop my water. I was laughing so hard. Right. Two different people both kind of say like, well, mm, authenticity, positivity (laughs) could have been edited in the most unfair, unflattering way, but also like, you know, is one of those things that is is actually a scene that stuck out to me more than like the iconic cheese sandwich from Fire Festival. I know, you know, the, so I watched the Hulu one before I watched the Netflix one. And I think that the Hulu one, the thing that it does very well is contextualize Firefest in, you know, like the time that we're in. I don't agree with... You the, mean this cultural moment? Yes, this cultural, this, this moment, um, <laughs> this cultural moment. Um, and so... I thought that was a neighborhood in Paris. Uh, <laughs> Stop trolling me. (laughs) (laughs) Sitting on the same couch and I want to leap at you. Um, The reason I don't buy that is that music festivals or like experiences like this are not new. What's that one in upstate New York? Woodstock. Yes, Woodstock. (laughs) Like I'm too young to know about Woodstock. My favorite character in the Netflix one made this comment that was essentially like, People died at Woodstock and it was awful or whatever, but does it mean that it shouldn't have happened? (laughs) The last 24 hours were unbelievable. All I kept thinking about was Woodstock. Think of that music festival. Does anybody talk about the hundreds and hundreds of cars that were stuck on the throughway for days? Does anybody talk about the mudslides? How many people died of drug overdoses? Does anybody talk about the lack of food? Almost no water. Absolutely not. And I thought, you know what? If Woodstock could get through that and from a publicity perspective land where it did fire festival can make it and part of me was like yeah no like that's bad oh white people are crazy but (laughs) woodstock an iconic white event (laughs) yeah an iconic white event but so i don't buy that like millennials are gullible like are a new gullible generation or that this idea that you see somebody doing something and you want to like be part of is new. I do think that technology makes it easier, accelerates it, and also amplifies the message faster. But like people be going to Woodstock, you know what I mean? And they figure that out without Instagram. Right. Enough people had FOMO to hitchhike to Woodstock. So exactly. like FOMO is not new. But yeah, but I do think the point about the speed at which it can happen. And I do think that it was it was made in kind of a clunky way. But part of the point about the, that the Hulu documentary was trying to make was like, yeah, and it can also be engineered now more easily, i.e. you can pay for hundreds of people who all have a certain number of followings to all post at the same time about something and get like the kind of buzz that took Woodstock weeks to build among like, <laughs> you know, rando hippies or whatever, you know? Right. Like, but th- this is, but that's like the heart of it to me is that 
everybody at any point in history has been susceptible to marketing. And I think the reason that I chafe so much at both of those documentaries is that while they did try to explain that a little bit, it wasn't tied into a larger cultural conversation that we have about the dangers of this stuff. So, you know, like the agency that was involved in um, making Firefest big is Jerry Media, which the marketing agency, the marketing agency, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people on Instagram follow fuck Jerry, this account that basically just steals memes and jokes from people. And I bet you that most people think that fuck Jerry is one guy, you know, like Mm -hmm. one guy just like making memes from his house. And it's like, no, no, this is like an entire marketing agency. And seeing, no, it's five guys in hoodies, not just one. Right. Oh my God. Uh, (laughs) But you know, like this idea that an agency can make you feel that the content is so relatable that it's on, you know, like one-to-one touch level and not something that's actually like an engineered experience, that scares me a little that a lot of people don't realize that. Because if you think about uh, a lot of things that went wrong in the 2016 election and the way that like Russian bots are just going around like fucking with our elections left and right, I'm like, this is the same instinct. It's the same kind of social engineering. And we're all part of that ecosystem. It just like really concerns me that we're not all on the same page about how dangerous this is. And so to watch like, you know, the the family guy, Firefest guy go to jail <laughs> and the marketing agency bros. The other other McFarland. Yeah, the other other McFarland. But to watch the agency bros really be like, oh yeah, we were hoodwinked too and we were swindled. I'm like, mm, no, you created the narrative that makes all of this, like any of this possible. And that's like a little frightening. A couple of years ago, 2016, which now feels like a lifetime ago. Three even, years ago. I know. Ooh. Even though we're still obviously, you know, Russian meddling, the constant that unites <laughs> that, that time, that time in this time. We had an episode called Jomo, Joy of Missing Out. Mm, my philosophy. I know. But I do think that all of the kind of meta conversation about Fire Festival and and how did it happen and who's responsible and then the conversation about the documentaries and like this deeper point about essentially like visual and like media literacy is one that I remain very interested in. Even if you and I are both Jomo people, like to the core, <laughs> the point is there are all these statistics. We see them every day about how everyone is miserable because of social media and feeling FOMO. Yeah, you know, and, it, and it's been really funny because you and I, like, you know, offline, <laughs> off, off mic, we talk obviously a lot about how we interact with our own social media. Like my dark arts is marketing and PR. That's literally what I did for a decade. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm like, I have... I'm vaccinated against a lot of this stuff because I used to make a lot of the junk that people consume. Slash, I just, you know, I'm like, I just know a little more than everybody else when it comes to this stuff. But I have been really surprised how even recently anxiety about social media is slipping into my life. And it is happening for me on a platform that used to be the most delightful place in the world, which is Instagram. I thought that I had curated for myself an Instagram that was mostly like, it's delightful things that I want to buy. It's actual real friends that I have. And I love seeing the world through their eyes. Like my favorite thing on Instagram is just seeing how my friends see the world and, you know, and following people who make me laugh. And so I always thought that I was fully in control with that and watching how the algorithm works now or the tools that they're introducing, i.e. close friends and all of the stuff is making me a little bit unsure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's been a journey 
trying to really figure out like what is actually going on. Oh my God. I have a so much anxiety and unres- so many unresolved feelings about Instagram as unresolved well. Unresolved feelings is perfect. Yeah. Anxiety is maybe the wrong term. I have a kind of like shifting with the winds feelings about <laughs> it. And yeah, like you, it used to be a space where I just enjoyed myself. It was sort of like stoner brain. I look at funny things or like keep tabs with my friends in a way that's divorced from the comment threads on Facebook. And it didn't feel like work to me the way Twitter always did. Mm. Like Twitter is my professional water cooler and that's it. Like I'm like, I go there because other journalists are hanging out there and and sick. I know, I know. <laughs> but look, like like this is this is my profession, a sick profession. Okay. Um sick. Yeah. But I think that that has started to shift where it is increasingly clear to me that Instagram is a public platform for me because even though my account is locked, I accept follows from people who don't have like outward markings of being like awful MAGA people or bots. The the threshold's pretty low. And I, I tend to kind of feel this is a real old school like blog internet philosophy of like if you have to, if you put up one like speed bump to entry, you'll get rid of most horrible people. Not all, but like a lot of horrible people. And I think people will respect the space a little bit more, which means I will have to spend less time deleting horrible things in comments or whatever, which for the most part has been kind of true. But what I did not resolve after making that decision was like, I have now decided to make this a public like kind of work platform, frankly, like something that feels more akin to maybe how I would use like Twitter and talk to other journalists. And I, it is not the same thing for me as just sharing with my friends about my life anymore. It's a very weird problem to have because I feel bad complaining about that. Like so many people want to follow me. I feel bad about it now. I think of myself as working in two media like forms, which is the written word and audio. And like Instagram is a visual platform. And so even though I am, you know, fine to post nice photos for my friends, I feel a lot of like conflicted feelings about having a visual platform be a primary work platform for me. And that is way too much information about me and Instagram. (laughs) Yeah, that's I'm like processing that. I think, you know, I think that part of what it is, is that, Like, a thing that has always bothered me about the internet TM, Al Gore's internet, is is that you make these choices to join platforms or to join water coolers. You make them from a place of just, like, personal preference. Like, all of my friends are here, or this looks like a delight, or... Yes, I would like to find out about TikTok as well. (laughs) And... (laughs) But we were promised, you know, this, like, weird democracy, the... Greek square where everybody's idea is important or whatever. The or, marketplace of ideas. Yeah, it's like the marketplace <laughs> of ideas. Or you think that you're just making decisions as an individual. You're like, oh, like a place where I can post like a sandwich that I eat every day. Like, great. And you don't fully realize the implications that they have because the platforms are manipulative. So I don't think that like the fact that you are going through all of these stages is indicative of the fact that Instagram has changed. Like yeah, the thing yeah. that they sold you when you joined that platform like years ago. Which was friend TV. Like just like watch your friends. Like you would watch TV. Watch your friends that, you know, like there were a couple of people who followed you. You knew everybody who you were following or you, or you aspire to know them or whatever. When we joined Instagram, they didn't sell ads. There was no sponsored content. There was no um, segregate like your friends and your not friends. There wasn't a way to like DM people that you didn't know. And so as the platforms evolved, 
people also change their behavior around them. And a lot of the platform change incentivizes that that user behavior change. And part of it, like a thing that you mean, has, you mean encourages people to follow strangers right, and, and interact with them. That's all they're yeah. doing. Mm-hmm. The entire algorithm is geared towards showing you people that you don't know so that there's more eyeballs for ads that they want to sell. Mm-hmm. That's fully what is going on here. That's why it's frustrating when all you want to follow really is, you know, like your new friend's baby account. But like Instagram is like, sorry, that account is locked. We don't care. They don't serve you that content. They're more, they they serve you these stories of people that you've never seen before. The discover feed is, they like tell you that it's interest that you have. And that is really manipulative. And we don't know how to contend with that as a society. And the other thing too is that on the internet in general, we all joined at various times since Al Gore invented it. Uh, <laughs> but we never had like a, there was no onboarding to the internet. So people all have different behaviors, like online behaviors that they have. And as a society, we've kind of never discussed what is acceptable or not. There's like Emily Post for the real world. Like everybody knows or everybody should know that you can't like bring a plus one to a wedding if you haven't talked to the people about it, right? Like everybody knows that. Not everybody knows that when you tweet about something or someone quietly and you don't tag them, somebody responding to you and like tagging that person in the conversation is snitching and it's wrong. <laughs> you know, like there are just these like behaviors that irk us or things that you you think are not cool or not okay, but we've never had like really etiquette around them. And we've never had to contend with the fact that the internet is also real life and that real life behavior comes into this space and we all make assumptions about them. So to me, like between that and then the platform just like wanting your advertising eyes, the anxiety is just like rising every day because the thing that you signed up for is no longer the thing that you're on and taking yourself out is kind of not fair. Yeah. And God, I, I feel a certain amount of relief just hearing you say that, honestly, like, you know, because it's very easy for me to say like, oh, these are the things that have changed in my life or like my approach to how I do my job or how I do the internet in the past few years. And it's like really easy for me to forget that there are also like, you know, capitalism driven changes to the internet itself. Like I know it's dumb. I read things about this all the time. And for some reason when I'm actually grappling with the questions of like what to post and how and what is appropriate on what platform, I never think about the macro questions of like who wants me to do what. Oh, and there are literal like hundreds of behavioralists and engineers and Mm -hmm. marketers who they stay up at night wanting you to 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 have a certain kind of behavior to a thing that they have built. So when I saw, for example, the, the close friends roll out on Instagram, a part of me was like, great, finally, I can have a list where I follow like my real people hmm. and or make content geared towards them. My tech brain said, wow, I am telling this company who all my close friends are so that they can sell them the exact same kind of advertising that they sell to me. Or when I see people at the end of the year do things like your best nine photos or the 10-year challenge. All I'm thinking about is how AI is mining all of this to do face recognition, to do, to like figure out like the places that you hang out and stuff like that. And it is terrifying. And part of me is like, well, I wish that we could teach this at scale and everybody could learn. But at the same time, the, the onus should not be on the individual users to feel that they have to do everything. Like we have to hold our platforms to account. And right now we're not doing any of it. Anytime like a tech CEO goes to Congress, the Congress people don't even know how to attach a photo to email. You know, like that's where they're at and they don't know what's going on. And we're being manipulated all the time. And it actually has like 
real life implications and serious like mental health implications for a lot of people's lives. So I'm going to read this little bit from a 2017 study in the UK, a countrywide survey of 14 to 24 year olds asking them about their habits with the five biggest social media platforms at the time, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Snapchat, and Instagram. And they ranked how their use of those platforms affected uh, the quality of their sleep, their FOMO, their body image, a bunch of other Mm. metrics, which on one hand, I'm like super interesting trying to take a holistic look. On the other hand, I'm like, I don't fucking know what which of what thing affects how I feel about whatever, you know, like we all live in the world where we're looking at something on our phone one minute and then looking at an ad somewhere else the next minute and then talking to a human being the next. So like, how do you separate? But this study is one that's frequently cited when people want to talk about Instagram being particularly bad for mental health as the study where Instagram came last scoring particularly badly for its effects on sleep, body image and FOMO. You know, we have these like few studies of like a couple thousand people, usually very young people that are never really juxtaposed with the kind of thing you're talking about in terms of like the company's aims. They're always juxtaposed with stories about like how millennials can't get it together or like, you know, something that has to do with personal lifestyle choices. Right. And it's so interesting too, because And I guess, like, the reason that this bums me out so much is that when I look at Instagram and I see this, like, a perfectly curated life, like, somebody who I'm like, the sandwich is popping, the bed is made, like, the outfit is bomb, like, all of it. All I hope is that you someday look at my Instagram and say, the sandwich is popping. Like, I need to post (laughs) more sandwich content. Your sandwich content is always popping. But also, (laughs) you don't need to put it on Instagram because you text it to me. It is so true. But when I see that, all like the first thing that always comes to mind is like great composition, you know, like a plus plus. <laughs> there are technical terms for it. Like I don't, you know, like unlike the song, I don't believe that anybody wakes up like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is again like technology is bad for many reasons, but this thing is not just technology; it is human instinct, you know, to look at people and to think that they're doing bad. Like the grass is always greener somewhere else, and then somehow, you know. Some people just have Instagram boyfriends who take perfect photos of them. And then you think that that's their real life. That's one thing that the internet is good at, if you are using it successfully, is that that's where you show your best self, right? It's like, it's edited. It's like, whatever you think that your best self is, do it. That's why I I never abide by like mean people online. I was like, you don't have to be mean here. You could be an amazingly nice person. Be mean to the people in your real life. I don't need the shit. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like... This is where, like, we all edit to lie about, like, what's going on. I just didn't realize that we weren't all on the same page about that. It turns out people edit for different things. People find different things compelling or important. Right. It's also, like, interesting to look at, especially people that you know sometimes, like, what's going on with them online. 
and to reach out in person to see how they're doing. Like, I know that for me, you know, everybody's always like, like, I mean, your Instagram stories are great. And I'm like, yeah, no shit. It's like a sign of anxiety and mania. Like, are you serious? <laughs> Nobody should have this much, like, just junk on their phone that they're trying to get rid of. On one hand, the reason that I love Instagram stories is because, you know, like, as you know, I am OCD, like for real diagnosed OCD. And part of it is that I'm like, I take these pictures. I like to see them on my phone, but I need them to disappear and putting them somewhere where they live temporarily for 24 hours 100% scratches that itch for me I'm like it's here it's gone now like I love this but the truth of it is that like it's also most of the time it's like I'm at a doctor I'm at a doctor's appointment waiting for something or I'm having like a very like manic kind of Mm. day and there are a few people who have noticed that who are friends with me and close you know like very closely and go hey like are you doing okay I'm like, no, I'm not doing great. (laughs) Do you see what is going on here? My life is a mess. Like, we are all laughing about it, but this is wild. And so the ways that, like, you are incentive, like, the rewards that social media offers, like, I think that we need to interrogate that a little bit more, Mm -hmm. you know, and to say, like, oh, hey, like, do you feel lonely that you are posting all of this, like, amazingly perfect content like too many selfies like what does that indicate like like what is the message behind the curation that you're doing and I hope that everybody has people close to them who is like asking them those real questions because it's not always pretty all the time yeah it's interesting so I'm thinking about not only the question of stories which is a little bit different but like overall what are your in a space like Instagram that is I think a little bit like more undefined in terms of is it supposed to be private is it supposed to be professional it is both for many people how do you decide which parts of yourself to share with the world or like in in this case now which parts of yourself to share with like only this very lucrative close friends list i used to share thinking that the only people who saw my instagram were my close friends my instagram was always actually it was not always public but it's been public for a really long time And I always imagined, you know, that it was like you and Gina and like seven other people. (laughs) That's that's what I thought was going on. And then I actually looked at the follower count one day and I was like, oh, this is actually a lot of people. It's mostly probably all Russian bots, but it's also like a lot of eyeballs. And so generally my my calculus now for how I share that is that if it's something that I don't mind the whole world knowing it's fine. Like if it's something that I have resolved feelings about, it's fine. The place where I feel usually the most conflicted is how I share about not me on the Mm -hmm. internet. You know what I mean? So like photos of other friends, photos of other friends' children, which P.S. you should always ask your friends before you post pictures of their children on the internet. Or themselves. Yeah, yeah. but like especially the kids. (laughs) Um, And that's why like close friends has been so interesting for me. I would say that on my close friends list, there are probably less than 100 people or right around 100 people. And I would say that they're all friends. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like IRL friends. Some of them are online only friends, but they're friends. Like they're people who I was like, would would I invite you to dinner at my house? Absolutely. Like, would I have dinner with you alone at my house? That is the criteria. That's a space where I like for me has been really freeing because it means that like you don't have to tag people. You know, you don't have to explain really anything. You don't have to contextualize anything. Because even that act of tagging someone sometimes, I'm like, that is just feeding into the FOMO economy. Like, oh, look at who Anne is friends with. Who's this person? Click on it. Find out. You know, like, you are just like, like, oh, turns out I already know this person. (laughs) Right. But you know what I mean? It's just like adding more people into the web. And so the the way that I have liked uh, that feature where I feel like I am the most myself right now 
it's a it's a place where I don't have to contextualize anybody or anything and I can just share. But I know that not everybody uses it the same way. I was talking to a very close friend recently and she was saying that that feature actually gives her so much anxiety because all she can think about is which close friends feeds am I not a part of? What else is going mm. on in this? You know, like here's another new intimate space that I'm not a part of. And I was like, wow, thank you for giving me that anxiety now because I didn't have that before. And so it's it's very interesting, right? But like back to your question, I think that I feel very conflicted about it. I don't know. I'm figuring it out as I go. One feature that I do love on Instagram is that sometimes you can block it so that nobody can comment on a photo. And I wish that they would also do that for the like count where you just like couldn't see it because that's not why I use it. Like I don't actually care how many people engage with it. The only thing that that feature does for me when I do see how many people like it is that it reminds me that it's not just for me mm-hmm. and that maybe I should have kept it to myself. So I don't quite know. Yeah, I really don't like if I can sense that like people want my lifestyle. I know that sounds dumb, but like something that's not dumb. And do you know how many people always tell me like, oh, I want Anne's like, you know, like I want to be a freelancer like her. I want to be a journalist like her. And I'm like, bitch, and been in these trenches for years. (laughs) Right. And I'm sort of like, while I don't feel the need to document myself working lots of hours or like what I look like when I get up super early to like record a thing before I write something while I don't feel upset that I don't have selfies from like early days of my freelance life when it was very hard for me to make ends meet and I was saying yes to all kinds of fucked up women's magazine assignments just because the dollar amount seemed higher but there's no price you can put on your soul I um (laughs) there is a price for my soul please inquire with him (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, the right. So, like, that's one example, right, of, like, now being like, oh, I feel really great about the work that I put in to get to the place where I am now, where you and I get to work together, and, like, I get to have a kind of, like, flexible lifestyle, and I do have more freedom to say no to things. Like, how do you, like, I mean, maybe it's, like, the multi-photo slideshow of, like, having the next photo be, like, like, hello, here is my bank account from 2013. And this is where I, you know what I mean? Like, it's a very weird context. I think that's what I'm trying to say is I really struggle with wanting to use it as, I mean, I am drawn to posting things when I am happy about something. Of course. Of course. And I think that like, that's a natural feeling. And at the same time, I am not wanting to be any kind of barometer by which other people judge themselves just as I don't judge myself by like what other people have going on when I'm my best self. So I, I think it's very hard um, to try to figure that out. And I also think that it's Instagram is a hard place for me as someone who would like to be in conversation about or talking about like the ideas I'm thinking about lately, like that kind of, it can be hard for me to figure out how to translate that to a predominantly visual medium sometimes. Some of it is like, I'm still learning the ways I want to use it in like, frankly, a professional way. Um, It's you people like you who ruin all platforms. The minute journalists join, they're always like, how do I make this about work? I don't know how to tell you this, but I would be totally happy. I, I have to have like now like my other account for all my fun stuff only. I would be totally happy if Instagram were never a work account. But guess what? Like it just it's happening. I know, but that's always been you my... and I have a book to sell imminently. OK, I know, I'm like but not abandoning shit. It's always been my grand theory that the decline of every social platform happens when journalists find it. It's when everything starts going under. Same thing happened 
happened on Twitter, happened on MySpace, happened on Friendster. I was like, <laughs> let us have our platforms. Um, joking aside, I really appreciate you saying that thing, though, about not wanting to be the barometer that people judge themselves by. Because I think you just, like, vocalize very well what actually my main anxiety about the whole thing is, is... Whenever I see people who live, like, very boldly, like, outwardly lives, like a live out loud, which I, you know, I'm like, we're, we're part of that economy, is all I really think is like, wow, like, you are a brave gladiator. You are really brave for being in the arena. Like, it is hard to, to want to share your ideas and your work with the world. I know that we make it look, like, fun all the time, but it's not glamorous all the time. Like, I think about, like, when we were on tour, like, all of that travel and how just, like, awful it is. And people going, like, oh, my God, like, always jetting off somewhere. And I'm, like, do you want to be here? This life is hard. And I know that it sounds like, you know, smallest, like, first world smallest violins. But it actually, like, isn't. When I think about, like, what I am doing on social media, I really hope, I really hope that part of it is people realizing that I... And, like, every time I open up about a vulnerability that I have or a thing that I think I suck at or something, you know, like, the the piece where you're, like, I'm trying to be an authentic person here. I, I am doing that because I want to give other people permission to do the same for themselves, you know? Like, you shouldn't aspire to have anybody else's life. Like, everybody else's life is hard. I don't even want to be Oprah. Like, can you imagine? I don't want to be anybody. Do the best that you can with what you have because... People are out here struggling. And the more public they live their lives, like the harder it actually is. And I'm like, I don't want to be somebody that people look at and think that I have it all together or that I'm like somebody to aspire to. I'm like, my life is literally a mess. Like you don't want to trade with me. But I hope that like you can feel compassion for me and you can feel compassion for yourself. Yeah. Listen, we're not perfect, but we can maybe also do a little bit better, especially on the toothbrushing front. Quip is a better electric toothbrush that can help. While some electric toothbrushes are super abrasive, Quip has a sensitive sonic vibration for an effective clean that's gentle on your sensitive gums. Plus, it's got a built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides. So you get like a super completist brush, even if like me, you zone out and stare into the mirror while you're brushing your teeth at the end of a long day. It also is super sleek, great to travel with, and accepted by the American Dental Association. I love this product. It is, in fact, my second favorite vibrating device. And over one million happy, healthy mouths love it, too. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash girlfriend right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash girlfriend. One of my very oldest and dearest friends, Laura Shipley, is an assistant professor of photography at Michigan State University. And she and I had a lot of conversations when she first started teaching the basically like photo 101 class there, because in the past, I think it was the class where people would learn how to like, you know, develop stuff in the dark room or like maybe learn, you know, the rule of thirds and composing a photo. And she has this challenge of like, hey, guess what? In this moment, everyone's a photographer. Like there's not a single student in her class who isn't already making photos all the time. Yeah, I got apps to make old timey photos. I've Listen. been a photographer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, part of her challenge is helping her students look critically at all of the photos they see in the world. And I think for a lot of them, a primary place they're seeing photos is Instagram. So I called her up to ask her 
how she communicates some of these ideas to them and how she's uh, teaching them to think more critically about what they see. Hi, Lara. Hi, Anne. (laughs) So I'm hoping you can start off by talking a little bit about why it's important for you that your students know how to talk and think critically about something like Instagram and not just like frame a photo using the rule of thirds or like do an amazing lay flat that all their friends will like. (laughs) Yeah, I... So I'm teaching a um, fine art photography class or classes. And, you know, this is something I've kind of been starting off recently with my beginning photography class, which has been traditionally, um, you know, focusing on like a lot of photography one classes, landscape, portraiture, you know, dealing with the fine art photography canon, stuff like that. Artistic photos of like manhole covers. That's what I think of when I think of my photo 101 experience. Bike racks, you know, (laughs) (laughs) lots of cats, et cetera. It's cool. Um, (laughs) But I've only been teaching for a few years and I'm just thinking more and more that the way we look at photographs is just the same, whether that photograph is in a gallery or on our phone or a mugshot or a part of the news, they're all photographs. Our brain is inputting them in a really similar way. So if you get well-versed at thinking critically about all the photographs that are around you, not only is that gonna make it easier for being a human today because we are surrounded by photographs and have to deal with them, but I think it will also make you a better photographer because you are thinking about how these things apply across context. If you were thinking of each of our personal output of photos as not all that different from a professional photographer's body of work, like in practical terms, how do you get them to see it that way? Because I think to a lot of people, it's just like, yeah, this is just life. I take photos. I keep photos. I post some of them. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's actually really challenging is what I'm finding out. A year ago, we were working on uh, making portraits as their studio project. And I was like, in conjunction with this, why don't you choose a person on Instagram who's like a public persona or a company that has an Instagram persona and talk about the way in which they're using photography to develop that persona and portray it and talk about it, you know, exactly the way we are learning how to talk about fine art photography. What are they choosing to show? So the edit, the selection, Are they using particular colors, lighting, you know, all these things that we use to analyze how we're reading a photo, just apply that to these um, other people. It did not go well. (laughs) 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 You know, they, they gave their presentations and they were like, this person is like this and this person is like that. And I'll like... <laughs> Meaning what? Like Kim Kardashian likes wearing beige and parting her hair down the middle. Like, is that what you totally. mean? Or <laughs> Yeah. Like, not like this is how she's portraying herself, but this like, this is who she is. You know, uh. I remember this one boy who is like clearly so smitten with Amelia Clark, I think, uh, from Game of Thrones. Uh-huh. <laughs> the dragon lady. <laughs> That's who he chose. And he was talking about her account and um, how down to earth she was and really goofy and just seemed like she was just like a fun, laid back person, you know, uh-huh. and it's like, <laughs> like no kind of awareness like that, you know, especially someone like that. I mean, I'm sure there's like a publicist involved. Like this is all intentional. This is her putting that forth in a very sophisticated way. And they could see it more with, Beyonce or Kim Kardashian, who those images feel so stylized. 
Mm-hmm. But when the style feels candid, when it feels like pictures that they make, totally throws them. To take this Amelia Clark example. Yeah. What did you say then when the student was like, hey, she seems so chill? <laughs> um, what What did you say to kind of like interrogate that? Or like, how do you how do you get that to the next level of like, hmm, maybe she's, you know, someone is choosing photos that just look a certain way right. and we have no idea what her life is like. I keep just trying to bring it back to the photos. Okay, not who she is, but what in the photo is making you read chill? What in the <laughs> photo is making you read goofy? You know, how is the photograph taken to make you feel that way? What kind of expressions, you know, these sorts of things. And this is something that I think comes up all semester long with every class I teach just with photography in general, is that people just still see them as like this window to the world, as this like little bit of reality, not as like something that's authored. And Mm. so, you know, I honestly, those conversations just take time to kind of work through because it's confusing because we're so used to seeing photography that way. Even like some of like famous art theorists and critics have since the beginning of photography have just been like, oh, it's a science. It's documenting the world. Photographers can't be authors, right? They're just like camera mechanics, you know, pushing buttons. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so it's one of the reasons why I think fine art photography has tried so hard to like separate itself from amateur photography and trying to be seen as different. But it's not. Fine art photographers maybe, hopefully, sometimes, I think are more aware that they're authoring something, but I think everybody is who's taking pictures, especially when they're choosing to share the picture. They're editing, picking out, selecting, this is the one I want to share. There's a lot of decisions that go into that. So what are the things that the resources or the skills that you, I mean, I'm not trying to get you to condense like an entire class that people pay good American public university dollars (laughs) to take into like a two minute blurb. But I am curious if it's like, okay, I'm listening to you. Mm -hmm. I am hearing what you're saying. I want to become more just aware as I'm, as I'm looking at something like Instagram that I have the impression is less stylized than maybe like an ad I see. How do I develop that skill? And are there resources that you use? Or how do you how did you get through to this poor soul who loves Amelia Clark so much? <laughs> um, well, I don't know. I've honestly struggled to find a good resource because I think we're so in the middle of it, you know? So there's like a million articles written about social media and how social media is positive how it's negative. And of course, I think you guys made a good point that it like, well, social media is different for everybody. It depends on how you're using it. Right. It's like your social media is is really what's operative. Yeah. Right, right. Like if you're just like following like cute animals, like maybe it is a totally relaxing experience, you know? (laughs) Is that the answer? Are you just like follow animals only? (laughs) You're like red fox Instagram. (laughs) Yeah. Or red panda. I forget which one you like. Whatever. I like red panda. I'm I'm partial to chill wildlife. I enjoy. (laughs) Okay. But so if you're not going to go full chill wildlife only on your Instagram, like I mean, what? Yeah. I think it's important just you know, to try to be more aware when you're looking at photographs. This is what I try to do because I'm just like everyone else. I look at a photograph and I think, oh, this is that thing. And just try mm. to slow down a little bit because it's really hard to do that because we, we look at so many 
But especially if you have a photograph that like might change your mind about something, be uh, important to your way of looking at the world, just slow down. Try to think about what's going on. Are we getting the full context? Might this be confusing? Let's see. Malcolm Gladwell has like a nice podcast. Uh, his revisionist history has like an episode on a photograph that was turned into uh, a statue. Mm. So one of the uh, police dog nipping the back of the black boy's pants. Mm -hmm. I really recommend listening to that. I think it uh, is a really good example of how confusing context can be, you know, and like uh, once an image is frozen, you can't look around. You can't see what happened before, what happened after. It's just you just have that moment and how those moments can be really tough. Uh, a couple other people I like who write about photography, uh, Trevor Paglin, Teju Cole for the New York Times. It's hard to find something that's really put this all together. So I'm I'm also writing a book about it. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, the only thing I ever want to hear is that, like, the person I know who is smartest about a thing oh, is shucks. making a thing oh, so shucks. other people can read about it. I was also going to um, big up Ways of Seeing. Oh, my gosh. Um, yes, of course. Yes. Everyone should which, go home or is at home and watch <laughs> Ways of Seeing immediately. It's on YouTube. Yeah, I mean, John Berger, brilliant. I mean, he's the one starts Ways of Seeing by saying, our first language is images. First right. we see images and then we learn language. Then we learn to speak. And I think that's so important when you were thinking about photography that we're not having to think about the way we're interpreting it. We're just interpreting. Right. So slow down. I also feel like that is not what Instagram is built for. Like no, the number, the, the no. how fast the thumb flick goes. This is a, a skill I've used more with Twitter than Instagram, wherein as soon as I start feeling like I kind of want to jump out of my skin or I start feeling bad about myself, which is a thing that happens like once I hit a certain hour yeah. point on social media, that's how I know, oh God, like it's the feeling within me that tells me to like either look closer or completely look away. And yeah. I think if you're looking at something on Instagram and you're like, this is making me feel like garbage like maybe yeah. the answer is could be either to close it or to be like what am I not seeing that's probably a part of this story yeah it is not normal to human history to spend this amount of time looking at images you know images didn't even exist a couple hundred years ago and now it's like yeah we're I probably have already looked at 100 images today you know it's not normal so I think that yeah we have to kind of be aware of like how this is working on us. It's hard when it's a part of being an engaged human being. Right. The opt-out is feel can feel really impossible, right? So it's like, what is, what do you do? So I think for me, part of this is also about thinking a little bit harder about what I choose to post and why and what message or lack thereof, like I am trying to send. And I think that like, um, some of the accounts on Instagram I like the most are the ones that even when they post a photo of themselves like looking fabulous, they kind of acknowledge all of the complicated things that are happening that you don't see outside the frame, like with the words in the caption. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about the history of like what we've been trained to take pictures of and want to share because like that's mm -hmm. not something that yeah. like, as you point out photography at this level is new it's not like we're, we have an innate sense of what is what we want to share and so like maybe you can talk about like like where the impulse to share certain things comes from yeah one of the first 
easy to use amateur, you know, considered to be an amateur camera. So a camera that you could use if you are not like a scientist or like, you know, some sort of specialist. Um, Mm -hmm. The Kodak Brownie changed the culture from going to a portrait studio to get a photograph taken to something that you're all of a sudden able to do on your own. So it made it easy. You could, it had a roll film and you could send the film into the lab pretty much the way photography has been until fairly recently. So this was new. People before had been, like I said, you know, they would go in, formally dressed, get a portrait made. Like super serious Victorian face. <laughs> well, <laughs> they also had to hold super still, you know. Right. So it's like, yeah, super serious. Like I've been here for like a solid 40 seconds <laughs> holding, holding my breath. <laughs> um, so it's like a really different relationship to photography. Very formal. This technology brought in this like totally new kind of photography, which is... Um, the Kodak Brownie you're talking the about. The Kodak now, Brownie, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. Part of what they had to do was teach people how to use it. So they had this ad campaign that started teaching, essentially teaching people what to do with the technology. What to do with, like, a a personal camera, essentially. Yeah, their very own Mm -hmm. camera. And the ads tend to feature uh, women as the photographers and specifically chroniclers of their family. So that's what the camera was for. Create this document of your home life. And they featured women because they wanted to show how easy it was to use. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) silly lady brains can operate it. (laughs) I know, even a woman Sometimes oh they're God. like, even your kids, you know, it's like women and children. Um, oh, God. I know. I know. <laughs> so, uh, but I think it's really interesting to like Google those old ads and take a look at the kind of images that they use because they were in the taglines. They were holidays, beach vacation, special, fun, happy moments. And there was a real emphasis on two things. One, if you don't photograph it, it didn't happen. Mm. And two, photograph the good stuff. Wow. We're talking like this is 150 years ago or whatever. Yeah. Like, and that is the norm. I love how people are like, ugh, in this era of positivity. When, know. Like, you know, and it's like, no, no. <laughs> totally. Yeah, no. This is just how we've been taught through capitalism uh. to use this tool. And we're just still using it the exact same way, you know? And so what I found was really interesting is like, as I was doing that, doing that reading up on those ads, uh, I was looking at the most popular photographs on Instagram a few months ago. This was pre the infamous egg thing. But um, (laughs) (laughs) at that time, the two most popular images were Kylie Jenner at the hospital with her new baby. So family, right? And then Beyonce, the pregnancy photo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So really those topics, the family, the happy memories, positivity, right? Mm -hmm. All go back from that, our early origins of using this as amateurs. Right. And like weirdly on this platform that's designed for sharing amateur photography, but like clearly both of these people, like both Kylie and Beyonce, like Mm -hmm. women who have gotten very wealthy by being in very savvy control of their own image. There's nothing amateur about what they're doing. They're completely highly sophisticated in in their use of uh, the medium. Yeah, they're and they're like, yeah, they're the best at it. Wow. So now I feel like 
we can blame capitalism, which is where oh, we sure. love to end up for everything. <laughs> where I'm like, it's not that our we're, we personally are unable to separate like Amelia Clark's fun, chill life from Amelia Clark's press release. It is, right, right. it is really just the trickery of capitalism for literally decades and decades and decades. You know how like fine art photography is sort of characterized as like sad faces. Yeah, or you like know, like, like serious, serious face. face is is a more serious photo. Totally, yeah. right, right. I feel like this is just another response, another way to distinguish them from what amateurs are doing. But it is, in a sense, it's still kind of coming from the same place, right? It's like a reaction to this early encouragement on, on the way to use a camera. But we're all participants in this culture. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, Laura, I'm already pre-ordering your book in my mind. I can't <laughs> wait to read it. Um, and thank oh, you for talking you. about this today. Uh, my pleasure. Okay, I'm going to hit you with one of my personal big revel- revelatory takeaways from that conversation, <laughs> which is the problem is obviously not excessive photos or like Instagram itself. But I do have a problem with kind of the influencer construct and the idea of a whole account being built around one human being's presumed lifestyle, even though it is clearly a controlled narrative about that. And so I take the most delight in following accounts that are like kind of editorial that like have one thing that they're setting out to do. And it's really clear what they're doing and they do it really well. Right. Like have a specific point of view, have a story to tell me. Like I love Instagram accounts where I learn something. What is one of your faves? One of my faves is at Chuck Monsey, Chuck M-O-N-S-E-Y, who showcases a lot of queer people and a lot of people of color He just has like a very specific aesthetic and a point of view. And it's one of those like appointment Instagram accounts for me where at the end of the day or if I'm feeling like I'm having a down day, I just go and I like scroll through it again because you should always be learning. And I think that's very, very, very important. (laughs) Oh, yeah. A person in my extended friend group, Nikki Ford, has a great Instagram account called Nikki Ford Cooks, which is just like little kitchen tips and good recipes. I learn a lot from her. I like to eat the same things as Nikki does. So that's like one reason it's great. I love the Stoner Classic account, If You High. If You High. If You High is a family classic. Oh, yes. And we will ask after this week's episode, we'll post this and ask you all to share some accounts that you love that are like not built around one human being's presumed lifestyle, but that are bringing something else and something non FOMO inducing into your life. Thanks for coming to our Ted talk. (laughs) See you on the internet. (laughs) See you on the internet. You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download the show anywhere you listen to your faves or on Apple Podcast, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at callyrgf. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. Our associate producer is Destry Maria Sibley. This podcast is produced by Gina Dalvac. <laughs>